You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So welcome to this special talk as we're getting into some of the issues with what has been going on in the world and also some theology related to them. So I've entitled this talk, Israel, Hamas, and the Spirit of Amalek, which will become clear when I've done that as we go through. We just, let's just pray firstly before we get into this further. Uh, we'd ask now as we turn our hearts and our minds towards these uh, difficult issues, Lord, that you just anoint me, Lord, to speak your truth. I pray, Lord, that you give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church in this hour, Lord, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. So I thought because of the number of questions that I've had from people and things like that, it's easier for me just to do a talk where we can answer most of those questions as we go through. But let me just briefly manage your expectations a little bit. If you are here tonight, that I'm going to solve the Middle East crisis for you, you will be sorely disappointed. Actually, maybe you won't. Uh, generally, I'm not here to do that. If you're wanting me to simply answer some of the most controversial issues in Israel-Palestinian conflict, that is not primarily my purpose either to do that tonight. And also, we are not here specifically to try and counter and refute all of the lies, half-truths, and false reporting that we see in the world, although we will probably engage with some of that just by nature of teaching truth but that is again not the primary because my aims for the evening are much more modest than that what i really want to do is specifically look at the recent events that have just transpired in the last 12 days provide some historical context to them and the whole situation in gaza have some of the competing ideologies for understanding that leads to this turn of events and that will hopefully give you clarity and understanding that's one half of what i want to do and then the other half is really to look at the whole conflict, the whole context of everything that we see going on through the Bible. We want to do that so that we can expose the real source of what has been going on. We can, on the other hand, affirm God's fidelity to his covenants and his promises that he is faithful and provide guidance and some glimpse of what the Bible teaches will actually happen in the future. The issue is, some of you may know this, you can spend a lifetime becoming familiar with the history of the Middle East the continued complex, all the different groups that have risen and fallen and everything like that, you'll get a small glimpse of how complex that can be tonight. You can do endless geopolitical analysis of all of these different motives, personal reasons that people and nations involve. You can know what has happened simply by studying. But to properly understand what has happened, why these things have happened behind the scenes, it's my contention to do that, you have to have the Bible in the picture too. Without the word of God, you'll just endlessly be stuck in conflict after conflict, nation rising, nation falling, empire rising, on and on. As you do, you need the Bible to understand it. Like I would make that argument for the whole of history, in fact, actually. But this issue is a little bit more unique than that. However, let's just, before we get into this, outline the events that have happened over the last 12 days with the recent attack by Hamas on Israel. October the 7th. That is Shabbat morning. It was a Saturday. Hamas terrorists breached the border from Gaza into Israel and their terrorist soldiers came in by foot and also by air. I think this is going to work and it's going to be small for some of you, but that is the Gaza Strip. If you could see the whole map of Israel, it's the southern tip of Israel there. You can see the border to Egypt on the side. And we'll come back to this picture in a moment to explain what that is. But just so you know, that is the Gaza Strip. That's the area that we're talking about here. As you can see, the terrorists broke through 
exploding holes in the border fence coming through on motorbikes, on trucks, on foot. And there's also this unusual event where many of them paraglided across the border into Israel. This was quite a well-planned event at this time. To the Gaza Strip. So they came through the border and ended up basically just attacking all of the nearby villages. You see the green lines that are striped are the areas that were the terrorists basically went into. All of the little green docks are the towns where the terrorists did infiltrate the communities and kill people. And the three kafaras and the, the three red dots are, are the kibbutz. The, ma the main massacres happened where some of the mass killings happened at that time. Just so give you just a few pictures. Again, I'm not really going to be showing the graphic pictures that many of you have seen. Just so you're aware of that, there, there are plenty of them all over the place. This is an aerial photo before and after, and you can see the different holes in the, in the border fence that have happened there. And this is, again, what has happened now. So far, over 1,500 murdered, 4,000 injured, 200 roughly kidnapped. And at the moment now, 60,000 displaced is Israelis within Israel. And in fact, this event actually happened on the anniversary of the last surprise attack on Israel. Many of you may not realize that, but the Yom Kippur War, which was the last massive surprise attack on Israel, happened just really on the same. It was October 7th. That was in the same kind of thing going on. And Israel almost lost that war, but they did end up winning in the end. Anyway, as they made their way through all the different kibbutzes, they shot them, they burned them, they killed women, they killed children, they killed anyone that they could find, they burned houses and all these sorts of things. Now, I will just briefly go through some of the things that they did. Again, I don't have pictures. These are probably, that's probably the worst sort of picture that I have for you there, just because I don't want to show those things again. If we have been in contact with people who are on the ground, speaking with people just, and the, what went on in these kibbutz is beyond imagine, really. People killed with such savagery that you wouldn't believe it. Some of it had been reported. Many of the bodies show signs of torture. Even the young children and things like that. You all heard about the beheaded babies, 40 babies that were beheaded. Infants hacked to death in their cribs. Couples tied together at their wrists and burned alive in front of their children. Grandmas and elderly people mocked, paraded on camera and then slaughtered. They even killed a Holocaust survivor. Another elderly person who had dementia was taken hostage. Of course, women were brutalized by many soldiers in that time. Even one pregnant woman was found with her belly cut open, the baby pulled out, lying next to her, still attached by the umbilical cord, and the baby had been stabbed as the mother had been shot. And some of these things were filmed on the victim's own Facebook phones so that families could see would be on their own Facebook pages. And on it goes. Hundreds of beautiful young Israelis, recent children, were then carried off by Hamas back into Gaza. Many of them brutalized until they were deaf. Many of them in cages. Many of them paraded through the streets on trucks. Many of them beaten by wild frenzies crowd. And many of them unknown really what has happened or their whereabouts. These are horrific scenes. And again, some of the other worst scenes you've probably seen happened at the Nova Music Festival. This is a young person's go out into the desert, dance around, 
psychedelic kind of thing. You have to be in your twenties to attend this festival. So it gives you an idea. So full of young people and they have found pamphlets on the terrorists showing that they had deliberately planned to actually land at this festival. They knew about it and it was a plan of attack for them. So this is one of the horrible things that did. And there they descended upon the music festival and you've probably seen the, some of the videos of people just running, screaming, terrorists just shooting them indiscriminately. And you've probably all seen that horrible image of this poor young Israeli girl being carried off on a motorbike back into Gaza and on, on and on these atrocities really go. Many of the people kidnapped were literally babies, like infants and babies, but this is the situation. It's utterly abominable. This is the worst terrorist attack in history relative to population based on the numbers killed in one day. And some of these things are scenes that we have not really heard of, seen since the days of the Holocaust. And you must just remind you, this was not a military conflict. This was not a case that can be made for a just war, for a war of self-defense. You have to be quite frank saying this. This was, I would say, a demonically and religiously inspired savagery that deliberately targeted women, children, and civilians. And the reason for that deliberate targeting was quite simply because they are Jewish. And these are the facts that we have to understand. Now, this is again another reason why you've probably seen this already a little bit. If you watch the news, I tend to try and stay away from secondary news at times like this. It infuriates me so much. But you have this continuous mantra using these buzzwords like proportion, proportionality and balance. Those ones where you have to make sure that Israel is, has a proportionate response to these sorts of things. Uh, and it's, it's a bit of a joke, really. I mean, there is no proportionality in this issue. I don't really think there can be balance in something like this. Sometimes we just have to acknowledge that one side is committing heinous acts of evil, and that needs to be stopped. I mean, we wouldn't have any problem saying that about World War II, about the Nazis, about what happened in the concentration camps. We all know that for what it was, because we've studied it. But for some reason, when it's an issue like this, people just seem to have real trouble doing that. And we must also remember that it is the right of governments to restrain evil, to bear the sword, to restrain evil. So we have to understand that the myth portionality in conflict is for me, a clear example of the double standards that are always applied to Israel. For some reason, Israel is not allowed to do these things without the whole world getting involved and telling them to stay their hand. And they have historically been very restrained, but, but considering this was the worst atrocity and those things I've just mentioned to you is why they have responded like they have. We must acknowledge though, there is a clear difference between a nation acting to protect innocent life and really a group of anti-Semitic terrorists committing mass atrocities on civilian populations. And I contend that if you cannot see that then our moral compass has been lost really in the sea of relativism that our culture is so obsessed with. Now, again, I say that strong. I don't want to say much more about that. I don't want to say any more necessarily about the atrocities, except that I think we have to look at them because it is important that we understand what Israel has been up against. Okay, this might be some of this information for us. They've been fighting things like this for a long time. There's been many events on a smaller scale that have been quite similar to this but the world is quick to forget about these sorts of things. But you understand it. You know now why Israel needs a powerful military. You know why Gaza has to have a blockade around it sometimes, why it has to have a strong border. This is why. This is the sort of thing. All these people that we see in the streets across the world chanting free Palestine, 
Maybe think about what they're saying. You just got a glimpse of really what that means. They had one freedom here. When they got into Israel undetected, they had that freedom to do what they wanted. This is what this is their stated intention. Believe what they say. The Israelis do. They have to. Their lives depend on it. For some reason in the West, we don't believe that. But that is what's going on. Now, that was in the South. Now, to make matters worse, at the same time, uh, Hamas was launching heavy rocket attacks to the south of Israel, doing what they call barrages, which is something they've been testing in these frequent skirmishes that have gone before. Most people don't realize, but figured out if you can send so many rockets, you can overwhelm the Iron Dome system, and a few rockets will get through. And that was the plan. So that was also happening there. And then, in addition to that, now you have trouble on the northern border. So this is Gaza's down there. This is now at the top of Israel with the border with Lebanon and Syria, who are also starting to get involved because, of course, Lebanon is the home of Hezbollah, which is another Iranian terrorist proxy that is being pushed to get involved. And, of course, the Syrians that are being involved. This is a big issue. And, of course, because of that, the U.S., U.K. getting involved, Russia are making noises in various different places, Turkey. There's everyone. It has potential, of course, like it always does, to expand. It's not just an issue over there in the Middle East. This is a global issue, as the Bible always tells us it will be. As you've probably seen, there have been demonstrations across the world in support of Hamas and the Palestinians, as they say, but in support of Hamas primarily. This year, I think that was Iraq, that one was Iraq, and then Cape Town, that's, that's London, right? Uh, London had a big, big pro-Hamas Palestinian display. On and on, we could really go. France, of course, had a massive problem. They've had ongoing riots in their capital cities between the Muslim population and the secular government. These are just the issues that we see developing all over the world. We cannot ignore it. It is already here, as much as we might like to pretend it is not. Now, you wonder, when I study history for my, my PhD, I study a lot of the Holocaust and things like that. You often ask you question when you're reading about the things that happened, you're like, could many people not speak up and not say anything? How was this allowed to happen? This is how. It's exactly the same. We just, we, we don't love the truth so we rely, quite frankly, a bit like that. This is what is going on. People are not really speaking up. It's just moderate shows of support. But as we'll get into, that can change very quickly. This is how. I believe this is a wake-up call for all of us. It reminds me very much of the prophet Isaiah, who we've been studying, as he tried to wake up the sleeping nation of Israel at that time. Isaiah 52, verse 1 and 2, he says, Awake, awake, clothe yourself in strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So that's what's happened. That's what uh, we've seen over the last 12 days. Now let's talk about Israel for a moment before we get into some other stuff. Often Christians will use the term, or you'll hear them say the term, I support Israel. I myself would, would say that. However... I, I like to qualify terms. Terms can be terms can be abused. What do we actually mean by that? Because it can mean many different things to many different people, and this is where part of the confusion lies. If you're saying that usually in a political context, political discussion, it means you support the right of Israel's to national self determination. That is the right to have their land and defend their citizens. 
That's fine. It means that. A lot of critics will accuse someone like me if I said something like that. They would say, that, that means you've got an ignorant, blind support of Israel and you're willing to look away while they commit mass atrocities against all of the people and you give them a carte blanche to do whatever you want. That's a criticism we often hear. Now, that's, to be frank, that's a nonsense. I've never actually met a Christian Zionist or really anyone who actually believes that. A more biblically sophisticated view holds a view where you can easily acknowledge that the nation of Israel does have severe failings. It's a secular nation by all intents. Since they have high abortion rates, high drug rates, all the different things that every secular nation does in the world. And we agree with any of those things. We would morally stand against those things as we would as we saw them in our own nation. We must acknowledge that. What we primarily mean, what I primarily mean anyway, when I would say I support Israel, is that we acknowledge as believers and believe that the God of Israel has made covenants and promises to that nation and he will fulfill them. And those promises still remain. That is ultimately what we're referring That's the crux of the issue there. Now, one of the fascinating things about the Bible is that it does give us the past, present, and future history of the nation of Israel. It's a very strong apologetic, actually, if you want to prove that the Bible is true. How can the Bible predict the entire history of a nation? We've been studying this in Isaiah. It's one of the reasons where he charged the nations. If you can find someone else who predict the future, I'm all ears. But really, we know only God can do that. The nation of Israel is a prime example of that. God chose the nation as Israel for a specific purpose. And we see this right back in the early chapters of the book of Genesis with the patriarch Abraham and his son Isaac and Jacob. The covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12. Let's turn there and read it, please. I want you to read a few of these scriptures with me uh, rather than me just list them so you've got them in your head. Genesis 12, this is the beginnings of the Abrahamic covenant, probably the most foundational covenant in the whole Bible. The Lord says, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then he expands the covenant as he goes through. You find more about it in Genesis 17 as he goes, Isaac and Jacob. Read this one. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your descendants after you, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. In this covenant, you see it has personal covenant promises to Abraham, it has national promises to the people, and it also has universal promises. The whole world is going to be blessed through what God is doing in this covenantal promises. And then to understand the Bible, you must understand that is the foundation. Everything is tied up with this Abrahamic covenant, other covenants that come after it, the covenant to David, we call it the Davidic covenant, speaks of the Davidic king that will rule on the throne. That is an expansion of this covenant, the new covenant, which is where we get our spiritual blessings, our salvation, the, the spirit and these kind of things. That is also expansion of the blessing element of this covenant. This is how all the nations have been blessed through, through Israel, ultimately through Christ from Israel. You can understand the whole Bible like that. That's why it's so important. And these covenantal promises are said to be eternal. They are the guarantee that the existence of the Jewish people as a nation will always exist. Let's read Psalm 105, verse 8 to 11. It says, He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac, and then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, 
to Israel as an everlasting covenant, say to you, I will give the land of Canaan as a portion of your inheritance. You can trace this promise all through the Old Testament. However, you can also see it in the New Testament. Many people argue that when you get to the New Testament with Christ, things change. These promises were somehow universalized and spiritualized within the church. That is not, I believe, a biblical view. Romans 11, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, I say, and God has not rejected his people, has may it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. A little later in that same chapter, verse 25, he says, For I do not want you to be, you brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It's a very important concept. That answers the question for you, why, when you look at Israel, do not many of them believe in the Messiah? This is why generally they're a nation in rejection of their Messiah, except for the remnant in many ways. He goes on, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So here we see that the promises of the prophets of a time when the redemption of Israel would occur. So all of Israel will be saved. This is the Apostle Paul actually saying this too. Is after, look what he says, after the fullness of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles is an unusual term, but it, but whatever it must mean, it does seem to imply a, a full number of those who will be saved or at least an, an, an end of an era where the Gentiles are the primary focus, if you could say it like that. But we know whatever you want, you want to interpret it, it's clearly implied as being yet future here. Thus, we know Israel is of eschatological significance. That is, Israel is significant for your views of the end times, regardless of which view you hold. The Apostle Paul spells it out quite clearly in this verse. Jesus also affirms this too when he speaks his prophecy about Jerusalem in Luke 21, 24. He says, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So you have the fullness of the Gentiles and the times of the Gentiles. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot. That is a good description today. We've studied Revelation recently. We know that the Antichrist is going to do those things too. Any time when it will not be trampled underfoot, it will be living in peace and prosperity, it will be when the king of Jerusalem comes, basically. It's the second coming of Christ at that time. So again, this is speaking of the need for a future Israel. Jesus says, until, he says, it's going to be trampled down until there is a future time when it will not be trampled down. There is an end to this trampling down that will coincide with the second coming. This is one of the consistent themes of the prophets of Israel and also, as we've seen, the apostle and of our Lord Jesus. You cannot deny it. It also promises the prophets that after they have been scattered throughout the nations, the Jewish people would come a day when God would restore them to their land. Again, let me read to you a preacher, actually, rather than a Bible verse here. Many of you, if you recognize that map, uh, Anglican bishop called J.C. Rock, who uh, was a great preacher of the 19th century. He said this, Time would fail me if I attempted to quote all the passages of the scripture in which the future history of Israel is revealed. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, all declare the same thing all predict with more or less particularity that in the end of this dispensation, the Jews are to be restored to their own land and to the favor of God. 
I can only say that to my eyes, the future salvation of Israel as a people, their return to Palestine and their national conversion to God appear as plainly revealed as any prophecy in God's word. It's a wonderful quote. See, and he's absolutely right. The prophets also imply that the regathering of Israel will happen in stages, with the first in gathering seeming to be in a state of unbelief. Ezekiel 36, verse 24 and 25. The Lord says, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. The regathering in unbelief, then at some future point, the sprinkling with clean water, the conversion. Zechariah 12.10 also seems to give us this picture. It speaks of the Jewish people in Jerusalem turning in repentance to the Lord to the second coming. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep weepfully, bitter weeping of a firstborn. Zechariah 10, again. Of course, when you actually think about what that verse is saying, presupposes a Jewish presence in Jerusalem in unbelief prior to the second coming which is exactly what we have in the modern state of Israel. Thus, we know Israel being in the land, Jewish people being in the land, we could call that eschatological necessity. It is required in order for the second coming to take place because this verse says it straight away there. It's an eschatological necessity. Thus, many of us, myself, would be included in this. We rightly see the birth of modern Israel as a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. It is not a final fulfillment or even a full fulfillment. It's a stage of fulfillment because we know ultimately the fulfillment will come in the end times with the second coming. Charles Spurgeon acknowledged this would happen too. Listen to this. He said, I think we do not attach sufficient importance to the restoration of the Jews. We do not think enough about it, but certainly if there is anything promised in the Bible, it is this. It's J.C. Ryle and Spurgeon. Think about this. When were they writing? Those two quotes. Those two quotes are from 1855, or a little bit later in the first one. So almost 100 years before the modern state of Israel ever existed, there wasn't hint that Israel was going to be coming back and forming themselves as a nation again at this time. Where did they get this from? They got it from the prophets of the Bible. Okay, so it is plainly and clearly in the Bible. And let's look at one more prophecy of regathering. So I'm laying this out because you need to understand this before you enter to modern politics, to geopolitical analysis, to, to try to understand what is going on. You have to see God's purposes and God's name as they are attached to his covenantal promises to his people. This is an interesting one. Jeremiah 16, 15 and 16. But as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he banished them, for I will restore them to their own which I gave to their fathers. Behold, I'm going to send them for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. And afterwards I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt for them from every mountain and every hill from the clefts of the rock. Now this is quite a kind of a cryptic verse. But most people assume that fishers and hunters, these are Jewish metaphors for, for persecution. And this is exactly actually what we see in the rebirth of Israel. The primary motivation from a kind of historical context for Zionism or the rebirth of Israel, as you could say, was persecution. That is the primary motivation for it. In the 19th century, what we call the first Aliyah, that is the first set of immigration to Israel, that was due to the Tsarist pogroms that were happening at the time. 
After that, it was the European anti-Semitism. Then it was Nazi anti-Semitism. Then it was Soviet anti-Semitism. Then it was Islamic anti-Semitism. Then it was secular anti-Semitism. All of these things have pushed Jews back to the land as they have been hoisted out of host countries for generations now. But even with all of those anti-Semitism that I just listed, Israel is still here. Many attempts have been made to exterminate her, but none will ever be successful because the only way that could be successful is if that same attempt could undo God's promises and his work. And God says not one word of his good promise will fail. No one else can do that. Jeremiah 31 verse 37, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I'll cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. And his point being that can't be done and they will not be done. So that again, just a, it's a very brief overview of kind of the view that I would take on Israel, modern Israel and God's promises. Now let's briefly look at the history of modern Israel a little bit because we have to understand that and we have to understand the desire to exterminate modern Israel. So in the land that we refer to as Israel, the only sovereign states that have ever existed in the land of Israel are Jewish states. That's a fact. There have been three sovereign Jewish states in the land, in fact. The first one was the Commonwealth under the House of David. And the territory was slightly different. You can see they're shaded off into blue. It far extended the borders of modern Israel, which are the dark blue line on there. That was under David. That lasted for more than four centuries. And Jerusalem was the capital, back to about 1000 BC. That means the capital of Jerusalem 3000 years ago. Okay, that, that's an important historical fact when you enter into discussion with people today, because that is denied. In about 539 BC, we're studying this history at the moment in the book of Isaiah, the Babylonians came and they took them into captivity. Remember that? And then a little later, the Babylonians were taken over by the Persians and Cyrus let them return home and they rebuilt the second temple and all the history that we've studied a little bit of that. And then you remember we've studied our Hanukkah history before, the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans. The Greeks were ruling at this time and the Maccabees rebelled and threw off the yoke of Antiochus and the Greeks. And then after that, they did declare independence and had their own state for a small time. Okay. The Hasmonean dynasty, we call it. That was about 134 BC. That was the second state. And then after that, the Romans took over. And although the Jews still had, did have a Jewish state under Roman rule, that did end in 70 AD with the siege of Jerusalem. It's a famous painting there called the Siege of Jerusalem. This is when the Romans marched in, they destroyed the temple and they destroyed Jerusalem and they scattered the Jews. And this was... There were still Jewish people who did remain, and this was confirmed a little later in 132 when the Emperor Hadrian crushed another Jewish rebellion, the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, and that is when he renamed the land Syria-Palestina. He was so fed up with Jewish presence, he wanted to insult, so he renamed the land of Israel, which is why you'll notice in the Bible it's always called the land of Israel, except maybe if you've got those modern Bibles where it changes it and it puts Palestine. That, that, that's not what the text says, it's the land of Israel. The name Palestine came here from the Emperor Hadrian. It's related to ancient enemies of Israel, the Philistines. Hadrian did that with a specific purpose, obviously. The same time, he issued a decree that expelled the Jewish people from the land. We read about that uh, in the Bible, and that's many things in history that corroborate that. So since that time, the land has been ruled by many people. It's changed hands politically many times. You've had the Romans. Then after that, you've had the Byzantines. Then after that, you had the first Islamic caliphate. Then after that, the Crusaders held it. After that, the Malmuk dynasty held it. After that, the Ottoman Turks caliphate held it. And then after that, after they were defeated in the, in the war, the British Empire held control over this area. 
none of them in the same way were sovereign states like that. With the British Mandate period, that was the same time as the rising Zionist movement. You may have heard of someone called Theodore Herzl and these kind of things. The Zionist movement was getting underway at this time. There's so much history here. I'm really truncating this for you to give you just a broad overview. And you could spend years and years doing this, but hopefully this will give you a brief understanding. But again, like I said, the need for a homeland was increasing because of persecution worldwide that all these scattered Jews had. They were scattered throughout all of these different empires. Sometimes they came back and they lived in different areas. Some of those dynasties that I just listed off treated them more favorably than others. Uh, of course, if they were Islamic, they always had to be second-class citizens, but they were never really treated amazingly well. But throughout all of that scattering, the longing for Zion never died with these scattered Jews. Why? Psalm 137. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. This is, that's the heart, really, of what we have going on here. Um, although the longing for Zion never died, even to this Jews, wherever they are around the world, they say next year in Jerusalem, at the end of their Passover. This has always been implanted because you, when you study the history, it's all connected. And we might not know much about all these different areas of history, but it's, there's, there's a continuous identity going through there. However, running alongside this, the enemies of Israel always had hatred for Israel and did want to persecute the Jews. And we're going to see that more. Now let's jump to 1948. We're back around that period now. This is the time Israel stated and the modern state of Israel was reborn. Before that, it was controlled by the British mandate, which was a result of the end of the war. British got into right pickle with trying to manage Arab and Jewish demands. And in the end, they got bored and fed up. They handed it over to the United Nations, who made a partition plan and cut the land that was promised to the Jews at San Remo down to a small amount. Uh, but the Jews were desperate. They, they accepted it. The Arabs did not accept it. And on the day that Israel declared independence, the Arabs, uh, like I said, did not accept it. They decided to enter into a war of extermination with Israel. Egypt, Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan, and Syria joined forces in the war of extermination, thinking that because 1940, most of Israel are of course survivors and immigrants who have been persecuted and have much of an army, we can get rid of them before this even starts. That was the mindset of the time, and that is just a fact of history. You can't deny that. However, miraculously, this nation of Holocaust survivors, fresh from the horrors of Nazi Europe, they defeated these invading armies after quite a few months of fighting, and eventually armistice lines were drawn up. That placed, as you can see there, the West Bank, the West Bank is the orange part in the middle of Israel, around Jerusalem there. That was under Jordanian control. So Jordan, on the other side of the river there, under Jordanian control. Got the Gaza Strip, you see the Gaza Strip? That is Egyptian control at this time. Egypt controlled the Gaza Strip at this time. Okay. And then we're going to jump through. I'm missing a lot of the wars. What we call the modern wars, if we can call them that. There's many more skirmishes that I'm listing, but I'm listing you the main ones here. In 1967, the Six War. Now, having not succeeded in 1948, the Arab Islamic nations decided they wanted another crack at destroying Israel. And they started, this was Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Saudi Arabia and Iraq at this time. And they started gathering their forces around the borders of Israel. However, this time, Israel, having learned from the past, preemptive strike on the Egyptian Air Force, which was going to be their biggest problem. 
and they destroyed the Egyptian air force. And then the fighting that Israel ended up completely defeating all of those enemies. And you can see the territory that they took the Six Day War, all of the Sinai Peninsula and the Golan Heights, they took the West Bank and Gaza. They had all of that there. Now, going back through history, as we've just seen, as the history of how, how many times this has changed, how generally the nation is attacked aggressively for no purpose and aggressors lose, no one would claim that you should give the land back to those people who lost because they were trying to extend. But again, this is where we have that double stand with Israel. They were for so desperate for peace to live amongst their neighbors. They did eventually end up giving some of this back, but not yet. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Let's jump to 73. So again, just another kind of six years. They wanted one more try. Okay. 48 didn't work. 67 didn't work. They weren't happy. They were humiliated and defeated in 67, the Arab nations. They wanted one more try to try and exterminate Israel. This time it was Egypt and Syria, and they launched a surprise attack on Israel during their high holiday of Yom Kippur. When all of the army would have been out, no one, no, nothing would have been happening if Yom Kippur, even to this day. And it was a heavy war, many losses for Israel on this war. They were completely blindsided. But again, in the end, they were victorious. And they again gained territory. But again, with the ceasefire agreements that were pressured into eventually, they did end up giving some of that territory. You can see some of the problem areas there. But at this time, they did hold on to the Gaza Strip and those areas. And that was the last major war, if I could say it like that, at this time. And then from this, we see different things happening. So let's jump to 1979. We call this the Camp David Accords. Israel signed, returned the Sinai to Egypt, that massive area. They gave that back to Egypt. And in 1995, Israel and Jordan signed a peace treaty. And they gave the settle on a border between Jordan. And there were other wars too, the Lebanon wars at this time, which I won't go into. But it was at this time, something significant happened. There was a change of tactic. And it's a change of tactic that we still see going on today. It explains everything that you see going on today. They had tried 40, 67, 73, all of them, all of the Arab nations had tried to exceed Israel multiple times military and they'd been defeated and humiliated every time. In Islamic doctrine to be, that is a big humiliation for them. So now they changed tactic. And they'd switch from all out military to what we call guerrilla warfare and terrorism. And this is really the birth of modern terrorism as we would see it under Yasser Arafat and the PLO. This is what starts happening. They cannot beat Israel in conventional warfare. So they turn to guerrilla warfare and political maneuvering and propaganda. And with those two things, they have been much more successful. This eventually led the PLO incitement and all these different things led to what we call the first intifada in 1987. And what was different about this is this was PLO incitement of a young population which just been pushed to boiling point, if I could say it like that. And what the problem was is this was a young population. This was no longer an army. They were now using civilians in their war. And this was obviously done because when you do that, it makes it much harder to respond. The IDF is, it has a much harder job. It's not like when you attack with the Egyptian army and the Syrian armies. Now they're having to deal with this. It's much harder to respond. And of course, as we've just, you make one mistake, one civilian gets killed, the whole world will come against you and you can't do anything. But this is, you can see the strategy there, and it was quite a clever strategy. Well, this is what's happened, basically. So it was a different sort of thing. Now, around this time too, a new terror organization was on the rise with the name of Hamas. You probably won't have heard much of it around this time, but they were starting to challenge the aging PLO leadership. 
this is jumping in ahead a little bit in time. And if you know the history, your you're bus bombing, cafe bombing, you'll be familiar with some of the terrorism that happened throughout these years. And this basically continued, so did the incitement, so did the propaganda campaign. There's a whole, there's a whole thing. If you study this literature, there's a whole term that we use called Paddywood, if you know that. And that's a combination of Palestine and Hollywood. And it's to do with the very elaborate ways that the Palestinian media fabricate things. It's just an area. There's, there's many people that study it professionally and they're very good at it. Share some of that with you just now. We've just seen it with this whole thing. Uh, that is Paliwood to, to, to the whole whole degree there. Thankfully now that seems to like it's been exposed to just so much evidence. That hospital was shot down by a failed rocket from Gaza. We have it on video. We have conversations between Islamic Jihad and Hamas. And it's very, but I find that event interesting. Because we're talking about 40 beheaded babies, thousands massacred in the street. And for a few days, people seemed really upset about that. But there were still people saying, no, it doesn't exist. Uh, it, it's not true. The, the Israelis fabricated that. The Zionists fabricated that. People were struggling to believe it. It was only because there was so much video evidence that people accepted it. We have the same people who committed those atrocities saying, just saying it once. All they had to do was say Israel shot a hospital. The whole world just accepts it. Every Western news media prints it front page. Israel killed on. Did you see that? I mean, it was despicable what happened, how quickly they do it. And this is what I'm talking about, the double standards. Now, thankfully, it's come out. All of the evidence has been handed over to the Americans and different news agencies, the UK government too have seen it. Everyone's agreed, as far as I can tell right now, no, Israel did not shoot a hospital. That just goes against really what, what their ethics in that military bun, and it would be ridiculous. 30% of, of terrorist rockets fail. It's quite a common thing, so there's often fire casualties when you do that. But that, again, is Paddywood, and it's the media that drives that. It's despicable, but that is what happens. Anyway, back to 2000. This is what we call the start of the second intifada. And eventually, Ariel Sharon, if you remember that, he made the decision to completely remove any Israeli presence from Gaza. So he had actually, they had their own police and their own soldiers forcibly remove thousand of their own people who were living in Gaza who did not want to leave and you could tell it was speak to the soldiers they say after actual warfare this is the most traumatic thing they've ever had to do it was a gamble for Sharon of course Hamas would claim victory terror seems to have won the Israelis have gone however Sharon was gambling that the Palestinians would actually seize the opportunity and build a prosperous independent state like they claimed that they always wanted to do however it failed it was a gamble and it failed as soon as Israel left Palestinians rampaged through the areas that were where the Jewish people lived. They destroyed the entire infrastructure, water sanitation plants, greenhouses for growing crops. They absolutely destroyed it, like just a mob, basically. And they would have been able to use all of that stuff that was left for them to build a prosperous state, but they didn't. Instead, became a hotbed for terrorism pretty much as soon as the Israelis left. And that, again, the world excuses that. In 2006, Hamas win the election in Gaza. Again, they did 2007, they initiated a violent coup and they took over the military control from the Palestinian Authority and they completely controlled Gaza and there's really been no elections since. And since then, thousands of rockets have been fired into Israel, thousands of rockets have been fired into Israel. There's been small skirmishes and going on and on. Here's the history of Gaza in a nutshell. Now let's talk a little bit about Hamas because you have to understand Hamas, this is the thing no one wants to talk about because Hamas is an Islamic organization. And we don't like talking about these things. 
Hamas is an acronym in, in Arabic for Islamic Resistance Movement. And interestingly, in Hebrew, the word Hamas means violence. It was originally birthed in 1987 as an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. It's unusual. It's a Sunni Muslim organization, even though it's funded by Iran, which is a Shia Muslim. But they'll work together as long as they hate the Jews more than they hate each other. But when the Jews are gone, they'll go back to fighting themselves like they did in the Iraq Iran. That's how it works over there. Now, they are driven by a religiously inspired genocidal anti-Semitic ideology. We've got to be very clear about that. They are the elected government of Gaza. And if you want to try and engage with them, you have to understand this. The goal of Hamas is to kill and destroy Israel. Let me read it to you in their own words. This is the Hamas Charter. It's their government document. I'll read you a few quotes from it. The preamble, it says, Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it, just as it obliterated others before it. Article 11 says, the land of Palestine is an Islamic wak. That means it's a holy possession of Islam, consecrated for future Muslim generations until judgment day. No one can renounce it or any part or abandon it in any part. That is why you do not see them looking to make peace treat it goes against their beliefs. Article 15. The day the enemies usurp part of Muslim land, jihad becomes the individual duty of every Muslim. In the face of Jews' usurpation, it is compulsory that the banner of jihad be raised. Article 7. The day of judgment will not come until Muslims fight the Jews and kill them. And then the Jews will hide behind rocks and trees and the rocks and trees will cry out, Oh Muslim, there is a Jew hiding behind me. Come and kill him. On and on it goes. This is the sort of stuff, you know. This is what they said from birth. Why? It's like a pressure cooker in there. Article 22. And this is, if you've heard of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the famous Russian antiseptic document, but unfortunately many Christians still buy into it. Many communications of people who would believe a lot of the things I'm just about to read. But this is Hamas. Article 22. The enemies, the Jews, obviously the Zionists, have been scheming for a long time. And we have accumulated huge and influential material wealth. With their money, they took control of the world media. With their money, they stood in various parts of the globe. They stood behind the French Revolution, the Communist Revolution, and most of the revolutions we hear about. With their money, they formed secret organizations such as the Masons, the Rotary Clubs, and the Lions, which are spreading around the world in order to destroy societies and carry out Zionist interests. They stood behind World War I and formed the League of Nations through which they could rule the world. They were behind World War II through which they made huge financial gains. There is no war going on anywhere without them having their finger. So this is the same old anti-Semitic tribe. The Jews control the world, the even Zionists, and this is what they are fed, and they take it very seriously. So that is the situation. Like, there's many more articles, and they pretty much carry along with the same kind of themes. Now, it's interesting. Whenever something like this flares up, like it is now, what do you see? I mean, I just saw one of our ministers announcing special amount of money has now been to Jewish schools, Jewish nurseries, and Jewish groups around the country. So have extra security going on and, and across countries. It always spreads because, again, it's a global pool if you support these kinds of things. So that, again, context for why Hamas did what they did. It's commanded and they believe it. But now let's look at this from a biblical perspective, and this will be our last section, and we'll close at the end of this. This desire to exterminate the Jewish people, it is nothing new. We may be shocked at what we've just seen in the last 12 because of just the sheer brutality of it for our kind of slightly civilized worldview that we think we have. we're not used to that sort of thing, but we should be. If you study history, you should. This is the issue. Whether it's Hamas 
Hezbollah, if it's the PLO, Islamic Jihad, doesn't matter. If it wasn't another caliphate from history, if it wasn't them, it would be the Nazis. If it wasn't them, it would be the medieval Europeans. It would be the Crusaders. It would be the Inquisitions. If it wasn't them, it would be the Herods of this world. It would be the Romans, the Herods. If it wasn't them, it would be the Greek, the Antiochus, the Lamians, the Nebuchadnezzars. If it wasn't them, it would be the Assyrians. Sennacherib. We've been stunned. We were just at the British Museum on Saturday. We saw the relief panel that we taught on, skinning alive the Jewish captives all over the palaces. This is what they did. This has always been a desire of those who reject the Lord. The spirit is always started as soon as the nation of Israel was born. This is what we have to realize. Israel went into Egypt, they say, as a family. Yes, we've been told, but they went in as a family. They came out as a nation later. But what happened as soon as they came out? What's one of the first things that we see happening? The Amalekites started to attack Israel in their journey through the wilderness. Deuteronomy 17, 18, this verse. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary as he did not fear God. You see here the Amalekites attacked the stragglers at the rear. Who was that most likely to be? The elderly, the infant, maybe the women carrying children. What have we just looked at? First victims, people like this. The spirit is still alive and well. The Amalekites did exactly the same thing. Anti-Semitism existed long before the modern state of Israel. But it's a lie that people would tell you these conflicts exist simply because the modern state of Israel was there. Back through history, these things have always been happening. It is not because of the modern state of Israel. It's not because of the existence of a Jewish state. It's not because of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's not because of the checkpoints in Gaza or Israel security barrier. Those are just useful excuses. It comes from the conflict that Satan has with God. It is that we know this. We studied it in Revelation, Revelation 12, verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman, the dragon being Satan, who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. We know this, the woman being Israel, the child being Messiah. The dragon persecutes the woman Israel and wages war against the Messiah and all those who are attached to his name. This is a spiritual war against God, against his plan, and against his people. It's the cosmic war. It is what is going on behind the scenes. The true object of hatred is not actually the Jewish people. It doesn't make sense to, hate, to have such a massive campaign against them through the whole of human history. They're a very small nation. They always have. Very few people. It makes absolutely no sense, especially when you consider all of the things that they've done for the world. Many blessings. We won't go into that now, but they are still hated. But that is because the real object of hatred is God Himself. This is the issue underneath anti Semitism. It exists in the world due to the inherent, rebellious, unregenerate human hearts, energized by Satan using unregenerate human hearts. As the people of God, the Jewish people, chosen, covenanted to him, associated with him. They are, in many ways, in Satan's eyes, the nearest thing associated to him. And this kind of applies to the church in this age too. But they are associated to him. They are the closest the enemy can get to attacking God himself. And this also, just to the people, this applies to the land. Because we know many times in the Bible, it says because of the covenant, his name is above the land. 1 Kings 11.3 But to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant may have a lamp. Always before, always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. You see, the Jewish people remind 
Satan and also the world in many ways, that God does exist. They're unusual. They're peculiar people called out for a specific purpose. There's no other reason for their existence except they were formed by God. And thus, reminders that God exists reminds an unregenerate rebellion as well that they are accountable to him. He has chosen them for a special purpose, not anything to do with necessary, simply because of his purpose, that he wanted to use them to show the world his blessings and his greatness and bring that plan of redemption to its fruition by bringing the Messiah through there. Satan hates this. And we see the spirit of Amalek rise up throughout the Bible, the entire Bible, to try and stop this again and again. We studied this in our Revelation study, from the Garden of Eden to the very next step, the murder of the story with Cain and Abel. We see them rise up again and terrorize Israel in the time of Saul and David. But they, what did they, do? they attacked the camp of Saul and David, didn't they? Saul, rather. And they kidnapped the wives and the children. And they took them back. This was the Amalekites again. Years later, in the book of Esther, a descendant of Amalek, a man named Haman, again, had a radical hatred. Most people don't realize he was a descendant of Amalek. He had a radical hatred of the Jewish people, and he tried to foist a plan on the nation to exterminate the Jewish people. The spirit continues throughout generations. Listen to Moses in Exodus 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recited to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, Lord is my banner. And he said, the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Listen to that last part. The war, the Lord, sorry, will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. It's a very unusual verse. In fact, that will actually only find finally end with the second coming, which is at the end of all this history that we looked at a little bit here, when the salvation of Israel occurs. And this, in the New Testament, what I've been calling the spirit of Amalek, is given another name, and it's called the spirit of Antichrist. And John says it is already here, and yet there is a future Antichrist coming. And what did, as we went through Revelation, one of the main things that the Antichrist tries to do again, he makes one final attempt to destroy the nation of Israel. For those very same reasons, they are associated with God and he hates God. He uses unregenerate human hearts in his purposes, and the nations will turn against Israel. This, again, it's very clear in the Bible. Zechariah 12, 3. It will come about in that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone of all the peoples. All it will be severely injured, and all the nations will be gathered against. If it is correct that God has placed his name above Jerusalem, it is correct that there is an enemy of ourselves called Satan who hates God and hates his name. What one city in all the world would you expect to be the most problematic? Would you expect to be, have the most conflict, the most issues? It would be Jerusalem and the land of Israel. It's all back because of God's name. It's all because of that association. We can already see this happening. It's not hard to believe. Yes, we've got America, we've got the UK, and there's multiple reasons why people support Israel now. A lot of it's to do with money and weapons, and I, I get all that. I understand all that sort of stuff. I'm not actually care too much about that stuff. I do care, but not in, for this sort of a study. It's very easy to see how quickly people will turn against Israel. We're just 12 days after some of the most brutal massacres, and already no one's really talking about the massacres anymore. They're talking about what Israel is doing in response in Gaza. And the time is to... Israel know this is going to happen to them, but we see it. It happens very easily. It's an outworking, I believe, of unregenerate hearts, because it is ultimately a rejection of God.
thing. It doesn't matter necessarily what you think about Jewish people per se. It's the issue of why the Jewish people exist as a covenanted nation. And again, you cannot get away from it. It comes back to the God of Israel. God of Israel. The world is in rebellion to the God of Israel. That's why we see these things. Zechariah 14.2, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. Listen. The houses plundered, the women ravished, and the city exiled. Sounds very similar to what I just described to you in the beginning part, didn't it? Civilian residences being plundered, burnt, women being ravished, people being killed. It's the same spirit we see going on here. Very similar to what we've just seen. It is Satan fighting against God, ultimately using rebellious people as his instruments. We know this to be true. And again, that's not just me saying this. I'm in an eschatological position on these things. The scriptures, for me, are pretty clear on this. We know it is ultimately about Satan and God because what do we see in the book of Revelation? You remember when we studied this? When the Antichrist, the beast, is doing this, there it says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Now, let me just explain to you. This is the final battle, basically. Antichrist, the beast, as you call it, he has sent his people on one final attempt to destroy the Jews, and he almost succeeds. And right at the end, we see that's when the second coming occurs. The Lord will appear in glory on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. But then what is this? A meet, once the physical presence of the Lord is there, change from attacking the Jewish people, and they turn, and it says they wage war against God. And what you see is the end result physically of everything that's been happening behind the scenes up to that point spiritually. Yeah, this is the final proof of it. They wage war against God because that is always what the battle has been about. Yet, we also know their end. The Lord will destroy them with the brightness of his coming and the breath of his mouth. Just like that. One day the spirit of Amalek will be completely destroyed. Israel will be fully restored and redeemed. I'll end with the words of Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 62. He says, for Zion's sake... I will not keep silent for Jerusalem's sake. I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory, and you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It will no longer be said to you forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate, but you will be called my delight is in her and your land married. The Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married, for as a young virgin marries, so your sons will marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. That is ultimately the future, because God has promised, and his promises cannot fail. And because of that, we know his promises to us will not fail either. We as the church are not unrelated to these issues. It is important for us because if it's about God's word and promises, if it's for Israel, there's no guarantee it will stay for us. This is why we are connected to it. There's an old Israeli expression. They say, Am Yisrael Chai. I mean, you might see them chanting this. Usually when you get two counter protests and one side is chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which basically means we'll exterminate Israel. On the other side, they're chanting, Am Yisrael Chai. People of Israel live. People of Israel live. And the people of Israel do live because God lives. 
and he will fulfill his promises. Until then, though, we pray. This is our main purpose, I believe, in this issue. We pray. Think of Moses. How did they defeat the Amalekites to a degree in that first battle in Exodus? What did Moses do? He sent Joshua down to fight. He took Aaron and Hur up with him to the mountain, and they prayed over the battle. We enter into this spiritual battle through prayer, and we labor for the salvation of Israel, which will be a blessing for the whole world, and we labor to take the gospel to the ends of the earth till that time. That's our commission, really. And we have to double down on those things, stand on truth, and speak to the world. Amen? Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.